Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden, and you're listening to Queer Stories 2020 an adapted version of the Queer Stories podcast as you may have once known it. Instead of live recordings from events around the country, these stories were commissioned following a national call-out for new writing. Today's stories contend with purpose, something I have lacked markedly since theatres shut down mid-March. For our first storyteller, Bronte Noakes, my navel-gazing artistic ennui was not an option. Bronte works in childcare. Wiping tears, wiping noses and wiping bums till the cows come home. They're in their honours year studying psychology and when they're not studying, they're playing AFL for Sydney Uni or spending time underwater. At the beginning, my kids turned up every day at roll call reporting how many kids were in their class that day. We still struggled to get them to wash their hands, attempted to get them to social distance while lining up for afternoon tea and were told to try not to cuddle them unless they hurt themselves or were upset, which was, quite frankly, heartbreaking. Although I was so grateful to have a reason to leave the house, there were times where living in this kid-filled world got lonely. My adjacent housemates, known as the front house from my granny flat dwelling, weren't keen to have me inside the house. Other friends refrained from hugs and opted for socially distanced hangs due to my kid germs. I struggled not to take it personally. What hit me the hardest though was the beach closures, a refuge for my mental health and just down the road from my work. This, working at before and after school care, is my first and only real job, other than the babysitting I did as a teenager. When I started, I was a shy, introverted and straight passing 18 year old. Fast forward four and a bit years and my face is laminated and stuck on the front door labeled responsible person a legal title in childcare. Since day one, the kids have always been the best distraction. Try and worry about your relationship breaking down, your flatmate ignoring you or your uni assignment while kids lick your shoelaces, leap onto your back demanding jump squats and alert you of some issue in the bathroom all at the same time. It's impossible to continue to worry about the past or the future when there's just so much happening in the present. I call the kids at my work my kids, even though there's over 270 of them every day. I mix up siblings and think and talk about them when they're not around, to the extent that many of my friends know these kids by their first and last names. When the first lockdown happened, there was a lot of confusion around schools in New South Wales. Mixed information about whether kids could contract the virus, spread it, and whether school closures were effective or not. Eventually, and for a few months, the schools were almost closed just the kids of essential workers, kids with so many siblings it was not possible for them to all be at home, and some of our kids with behaviour management needs remained. 20 of my workmates were stood down, leaving only the longest standing and permanent staff members. The school, usually a bustling hub without a single quiet space, felt like a ghost town. The kids swung between brutal awareness of hygiene 
and a total abandonment of everything they'd been told in a matter of minutes, using coronavirus, duh, as a means of getting their peers away from them and explaining why their grandparents weren't picking them up anymore, then begging for piggybacks and cuddles. I asked a kid the other day what he thought about coronavirus. He said, wash your hands and only touch your family, while holding my hand, walking up to find his toy dog, named Baby Doggy, that he'd left in another playground. Early on in lockdown, we'd heard of a few other centres making rainbow signs to stick outside their schools to brighten up the daily walks everyone had started to get excited about. We set our kids to work and laminated a couple dozen rainbows. One kindergartner, Marius, was working on what looked to me like a watery sun. When I commented on his beautiful sun, he replied defensively, No, it's not a sun. It's coronavirus. As our numbers dwindled from triple digits to sometimes only 17 kids, the intensity of the distraction, the total inability to think of anything else than what was in front of you, dwindled too. My own mental health had plummeted and I reached, in hindsight, the rockiest bottom I've ever been to. Driving me to emergency one night, my best friend asked me a big question, forcing me to reflect on how others saw me and my role in their life. They asked me, how is this fair to the young kids that you work with? It wasn't. The dwindling numbers also meant we got closer to the kids who remained. Alfie, a six-year-old missing one front tooth after he asked a friend to kick it out a year earlier, developed a love for skipping ropes. I once witnessed him walking confidently up to my boss's son, only to ask him to tie me up. Later, he walked back to me, announcing that he was chained up like crazy skipping ropes tangled around his little body. The next day, he asked me to drag him, this time the skipping rope tied to a hula hoop. It was also an opportunity to harness those teachable moments you can't always attend to when the service is full. I tried to teach one child, Asa, about consent. He loves tickles and I told him, when you want me to stop tickling, you can say, stop Bronte or no more tickles. He took this on, but adapted it into a game he now calls Nice Bronte, Naughty Bronte, where he squeals, Naughty Bronte, and runs away screaming, Nice Bronte, Nice Bronte, when I get too close or start to tickle him. The kids also got more opportunities to ask us questions. As a visibly queer person working with kids, I'm used to questions. I used to joke that it wasn't a day working with kids if I hadn't been asked about my beard, moustache, or gender. One kindergarten girl, Sienna, who had become particularly attached to me during lockdown, once played with me for a full 20 minutes, dancing, chasing, reading stories, before she stopped, suddenly, with a puzzled expression taking over her face. She said bluntly, I'm not sure if you're a boy or a girl. To which I replied, Sienna, sometimes I'm not sure either. Sometimes in these conversations, I go a bit further. I start explaining how people aren't boys or girls, that there is an in-between that exists. But I don't usually get much further than that before they lose interest, walk off, or beg me to start the game again. That's the thing I love about kids. It's just not that important to them. As part of our legal responsibilities, we have to fill out a three-page form every time we give first aid, even if it's just a Band-Aid or an ice pack. Part of my job is convincing the kids they don't really need anything. If they insist, one of the first questions we ask for is their birthdays. We have to keep every one of these forms until the child turns 25. 
Some of the younger ones have no idea when their birthday is. They pick a month at random and when asked which day their birthday is, commonly respond after a period of silence, Wednesday? One such child is Brody, a tiny redhead who loves cuddles. During lockdown, we counted down the days until his seventh birthday, which fell on May the 31th, a date he reminded us of after every scrapes knee. One morning, after he consumed an alleged only five drops of Milo, Brody spewed on his shoes before school. On the phone to his single dad, a truck driver already halfway to Dubbo by 8.30am, we asked Brody if it was a big vomit or just a small one, trying to ascertain if dad had to ring around friends to collect him from school. Brody, looking even tinier and paler than usual, replied that it was just a medium vomit. The kids get bored in the school holidays. We can't take them to the movies or bowling, terrifying the general public like we usually do. The kids all lined up in their red shirts with our phone numbers on their backs, us adults forever counting them, losing track as the kids shouted us, 23, 47, 61, and having to start again. One child I got to understand a lot more was Elliot, because before COVID-19, I didn't know his name. Not because I hadn't tried. I pride myself on knowing almost all the names of the children. But because Elliot can't say the L sound, so his name sounds more like Elliot. One day I let the year ones draw tattoos on me with apparently washable markers. I asked them to draw sea creatures. Elliot approaches and asks to draw one too. He draws a sausage dog because he yarves sausage dogs. Later, he draws me a picture for my wall while he sits with an ice pack on his ankle, telling me his birthday's in five weeks when it's in November. The sausage dog is a long light blue rectangle with some smaller dark blue rectangles for legs. The body is dotted and the dots are connected in some Excel spreadsheet type pattern. There's an odd oval under the dog, which Elliot tells me is a bed. At this point in the drawing, I tell him it's great, but he stops me, tells me it's not finished and adds some large S shapes on top. When I inquire about these, he lets me know they're worms and Rainbow Diamond is selling them to a bird. Outside of my 270 kids, I look after one other kid, Arlo. He's in year seven now, so we just call it hanging out, although he does slip up sometimes and call me his babysitter. Over lockdown, we did homeschool together once a week. Arlo is the sweetest 12-year-old boy I've ever met. Like so many other kids, he really struggled during lockdown. He missed his friends, the skate park, our weekly trips to the beach, and he hated homeschool. We gritted our teeth and struggled through the online lessons together. Sometimes in his bed, the doona pulled over his head, his dog Billy under the covers too. Sometimes in a blanket fort between his bed and desk chair. With the lack of physical contact with his peers, he became a lot more affectionate and we grew more and more like siblings, to the point where he called me his sister. Tickle fights, gentle headlocks, and on more special occasions, when he knew his obstinacy was really getting to me, he'd hold my cheeks in his hands, squishing them up and down, and telling me that everything was going to be okay. The afternoon of Arlo's first day back at school, we went to the beach. It was raining and the swell was up. We swam in our wetsuits until the sun set, and then skipped back to my car, yelling singing in the rain at the top of our lungs. He told me usually he'd be too embarrassed, but he was just so happy. A few weeks later, he told me he loved me for the first time. It's a weird thing that a new boss can dramatically change a workplace to the point where it's unrecognisable. And another weird feeling to have someone new with so much power. Working at a laid-back beach school for four years, I often joked that I have a shock when I had a job I couldn't wear trackies to. 
However, professional uniform changes were just one of the culture shocks my new boss brought to the workplace. These changes seemed targeted at my usual attire, a mismatch of brightly coloured leggings, footy shorts and stripy thermals, and my queerness. Following this, I had my own coronavirus scare, got tested and took a week off for what turned out to be the flu. Even in a climate such as this, my time off landed me in a professional development meeting and with my first ever official warning. It felt like my home, my sanctuary, was burning down around me. I had a feeling I was lining up to be fired, a thought reinforced by my psychologist, and on her advice, I resigned first, wanting my last three weeks to be on my terms. However, my boss had to have the last word and so fired me after I resigned, something I wasn't sure could ever happen. The devastating part of this was that I was denied a proper goodbye. All the relationships I'd built over the years, all the kids I'd cuddled through tears, patched their bloody knees, wiped their bums, began fading before my eyes. As much as this decision wasn't fair on me, it wasn't fair on the kids either. In what became my last week at work, I started coming out to the kids. It started by accident. I was telling one of my friends as I walked in about my new girlfriend when a child asked me what I was talking about. I answered honestly, my girlfriend. Grace, a scrawny eight-year-old with a lot of opinions, replied immediately with, you're a lesbian? I tried to explain that I preferred queer, that I wasn't a woman, so couldn't be a lesbian, but she had already moved on and was asking me what my girlfriend's name was and how we'd met. On my last day, when I had to come in to return my keys and shirts, some of the kids met my girlfriend at the gate, excited to show her the Auslan they'd been practicing. When a teacher who clearly needed glasses asked the kids to leave Bronte's mum alone, the kids looked shocked and said exasperatedly, that's not Bronte's mum, that's Bronte's partner. It feels a bit like I've come full circle, experienced everything in the lockdown cycle. When it first happened, I felt lucky to have a job, a reason to leave the house, even though it felt like my world was collapsing around me. At schools, at least, there was a period of returning to normal, a return of the hectic quantities of children and noise and mess around us. And now, it seems like we're making the decline back to the mayhem, and this time I find myself, like many others, without a job. However, I do have some job prospects. One of my year threes, a tomboy called Ash, recently asked me if I was a bearded lady. I looked down at my ripped purple trackies tucked into my footy socks and looked back at her and said, I know I've got a beard, but I'm just not sure if I'm a lady. She was not swayed by this and continued to insist, please be a bearded lady, please. So if anyone's looking, this bearded lady is available for hire. This next story is by Sarah Langston, who also has a professional background in early childhood education and ECE advocacy. At the moment, though, she's studying bush regeneration and is a full-time single mother. I reckon I've been training much of my life for mothering through the apocalypse. The writing of this, for instance, was paused while I prepared my cottage for a snowstorm with no electricity or working fire. Ever googled DIY heater fire coals, terracotta pot, because I have this winter. In this house, we prep. I mean, it makes sense, right? As a small girl, I was tugged towards heroines like Ellen Ripley from Alien and Sarah Connor from Terminator. I was obliviously queer, but the pool was more a thirst to embody their prepper swagger and their balancing of strength and care. 
I would watch Sarah Connor Carr's No Fate But What We Make For Ourselves into a picnic table over and over, eyeing her muscles with the thrall of a Christmas beetle lumbering greedily towards light. She throbbed off the screen at me with a scorched, sad resilience. In the face of stakes that would make most people whimper and chuck it in, Sarah Connor kept going. Look, I think she just loved people too much to stop. She summoned mystical mum reserves, despite how hard she was crying rivers of snot and terrified. She also had a hidden cache of machine guns, which likely helped. Sarah Connor was a chaotic, traumatised mess, don't get me wrong, but she sure as shit didn't die or fold. And Ellen Ripley fought in an armoured robot suit to save the life of a tiny kid from an alien. So talk about mum goals. When Ellen tells the queen alien to get the fuck away from little Newt, I grabbed my gut as a kid and didn't let go. I sometimes wonder if Ripley and Connor were part of my ADHD family. Us folks with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder don't do shit halfway. We have big problem solving loving energy. We don't so much think outside of the box as we wander off, forget the box is there, begin building a cathedral and stop precisely once every 24 hours to eat and go to the loo. Who needs to piss when you can build your own Notre Dame from foraged wood, am I right? Those traits have made COVID-19 survivable for myself and my kid. They led us away from the inner west of Sydney and into Gundungurra and Darug country. It led us to sunsets that hang my jaw in humility and porch snow that we carefully scoop up and preserve in the freezer before watching the white flakes melt from our Ugg boots in front of the fire. COVID-19 and ADHD arrived in our lives simultaneously. I was diagnosed in early March and weeks later the pandemic was hit. They came when we sorely needed some kind of radical rupture as a family and forced it open. But before I go there, I have to go back. Less than a year before, I was rocking bodily on starch crisp sheets in the high dependency unit of our psych wing. It would be another eight months before I would receive my correct diagnosis. I swayed and sobbed in fear, overcome with emotions that roared like static. Clearly a fan of tough love, the psychiatric nurse told me that if I didn't find a way to calm down, I'd stay in there and away from my child longer. This is, by the way, one of the most common ways people approach big ADHD feels, impatience and exasperation. As she left the room, she locked the door. The next day, the crumbling white guy assigned as my psychiatrist said the same. To my eternal credit, I checked my impulsivity and did not ask him how his knee was, as Sarah Connor did. I had the good sense to intuit that Terminator references fall really flat with psych ward staff. I needed to snap out of it and get back to the baby. They needed me. The next day, I was calm, tidying my room, focused on getting back to the kid. I gave myself a five-minute shower cry, which another patient kindly interrupted, and then switched off my tears. This sudden calm is what hyperfocus looks like in ADHD. Hyperfocus happens when our brains decide something is important enough for us to concentrate on it. Honestly, I wish more admin tasks would come to me in the form of a burning bush because they'd get done. I want my water bill to arrive on fire, preferably. I also now know that by rocking, I was stimming to try to still the tumult of feels that comes of too much stress on an ADHD brain. Dopamine and norepinephrine are responsible for executive functions like memory, organisation and regulation of emotion. Our brains make a little at a time rather than a chunky baseline. Stress reduces these two. So the more stressed you are, the more ADHD you are, and you chase dopamine like Pac-Man to tip the balance back, to feel okay and smooth the feelings out. Our attempts to get dopamine can look like stimming. For me, this is repetitive movements or excessive social media use, which anyone who has known me will have noticed. It can also look like substance abuse, work or gym addiction, 
turbulent relationships or a constant succession of half-finished craft projects. Historically, I'm the half-naked woman sprinting around a party starting arguments. Conflict and social risk make for yummy dopamine. When people with ADHD don't know who we are, we live chaotically at the very edges of life and sometimes we fall over them. It's why I talk about it a lot and really openly, because if you don't know, you can't stay you and also safe. I was teetering at my edge that day, which had led me to hospital. My fiancé, their step-parent, had just left me that week because of my talking and crying loops. A couple of months before that, the babe had come through a life-threatening infection, stopped attending preschool, leaving me with 24-7 care as they recovered. My ADHD became more and more spiky in response to the increased stress, and so did theirs. Home was hellish with both me and the babe undiagnosed, as neither of us could regulate our emotions or sleep. Touch hurt and sound hurt. Basic self-care drowned me and there was little respite. And then my primary source of support, my partner, tapped out at the worst possible time. I unraveled, as you do. I'm a lucky little punk in that as soon as I say the words, I don't feel safe, my friends drop their shit and come. Soon a darling friend who is a prodom was in her car in my room making milky teas and ordering me to pack my bags for hospi. I remember folding undies and sobbing that I couldn't go and her telling me sharply with love, come on, you're going now, get packing. I pouted, I wept, but I did what I was told. I've also been struggling to sit down and write this story. She's organised me into it. In ADHD land, we solve writer's block by enlisting a femdom. To add the shit icing to the crap cake, the Saturday afternoon after I was discharged from psych, my housemate bailed too. I was suddenly about to be homeless with a small kid while still rocking hospital wristband. I'm not overstating things, I think, to say it was quite a bummer. ADHD brain once again took the wheel. Hyperfocus zoomed to the fore and I was making a list of properties on the Sunday and chucking on Lippy for house inspections on the Monday. By the end of the next week, I was organising to sign a lease. Problem solving while in hyperfocus is delicious. It's like having a hype squad in your head passing you Red Bull and screaming, you're killing it, babe. So we moved house into a cute little deco flat in Sydney. It was noisy, dirty, and I wasn't sure if I could hack living alone, but I got used to it. And I actually learned it had some big upsides like time in the evenings in my own head without other people asking me for things. I embarked on a year of group therapy to learn coping skills, enrolled kiddo in preschool and set about the work of recovery. But parenting was still a shit show. We were both grieving the loss of our previous family deeply and we'd lost our garden, a place to move. Group therapy was helping a lot, but living in the city in such a tiny space was really painful for us. The constant ambient noise and crowds were stressing us out more than I realised at the time. Both of us were frustrated and contained. I was covered head to toe in bruises from my not coping little bear. It dawned on me that both of us were probably neurodivergent. I made a metric fuck ton of calls to get them help first and was informed they qualified for the NDIS early intervention program. I spent the next six months getting them through screening and battling with the cumbersome beast that is the NDIS. By the end of March the next year, nearly $28,000 in funding had been approved for them. And in amongst that six-month wall of phone calls, I received my own diagnosis of ADHD from my psychiatrist. My first day on DEX, I posted a photo to Insta of me holding one of the precious magic pills. My face. I was one stoked little noodle. It was the first time my mind had calmed, where one thought would arrive, just one, and I'd follow it to its conclusion. The day before, I'd sat sobbing at my shrink, 
aka the medication god, showing him the pages of journal entries tracking my symptoms against the DSM criteria. If I was being graded on crazy, I'd get a HD for research. There were things like forgetting to undress before showering, like not being able to ride a bike into my teens, like constant falling and being able to talk underwater. Friends accounts shared their view that I was a wonderful, generous bucket of fun and bright as a button, but I couldn't find my keys or stop crying. I told him how I had experimented on myself by drinking nine cups of coffee a day for a week to see how stimulants modified my behaviour. I'd been a calm task fiend who slept better. He was horrified. It was, I told him, like a penny not so much dropping as being found lodged in my teeth like spinach, explaining what exactly the last 36 fucking years had been about. As I rambled and sobbed, he asked me with a very familiar, mild impatience, so do you think you have ADHD? At that point, I cracked it and bawled, yeah. After the first dose, I sat on the kitchen floor for a shocked sob. All my life, I'd been sailing in a storm with no rudder, capsizing, screaming Brian into my lungs. Dex had scooped me up and plonked me in a steady craft with a map and fresh dry clothes. I now divide my life into pre-Dex and post-Dex. I wish I'd been medicated as a kid. I've since been told my parents were told multiple times by teachers to do so. They knew. One day, I'll stop being shitty about that. Look me up in my 70s. And then, of course, just as we were on the right track, COVID-19 showed up. The first conversations I had about it were with mum friends when cases snowballed in Wuhan. Then it hit Australia. We pulled our kids from preschool to stem community transmission since kids were said to be plague rats. Going back to 24-7 care was terrifying because I was afraid I would crumble again, even though I was now medicated. When the government advice came that exposure meant quarantine for two weeks, I went into my bathroom and screamed into a towel. I knew I would not survive two weeks in a one-bedroom apartment alone with my unmedicated child, no yard and no help. Shortly after this, the playgrounds closed. We were fucking cooked. Insomnia kept me up all night wondering what I was going to do. We needed a yard to get through this, but I was on parenting payment in Sydney, where you pay 400 a week to live in a mouldy music box with a broken ballerina and a couple of young liberals. So then I thought, why don't we just leave? I opened maps at 3am and stared at it. My brain leapt from place to place as I wiggled my legs, bumping the dopamine button as the idea rapidly blistered into a solid form. We would need to be on the train line, some friends in the area, close to services, and far from Sydney. Close enough, their loved ones could still see them. Fuck it, I thought, I can do this. I followed the train line with my finger and landed on the town that ticked all the boxes. Within a day, I had a few properties to inspect via FaceTime and soon was discussing a lease. My two best mates put up the bond money for me and kiddo because they're legends. My mates in our new town threw up temporary fencing at the new house and did a sneak test for mould. Two weeks later, the moving truck was cruising out of Sydney with my aunt at the wheel. She loves heavy vehicles. <laughs> Looks quite good in a trucker's cap too. I'm pretty sure being a boss bitch is matrilineal in my family. And so we were out. We leapt. I bit and hoped I could chew to avoid being eaten alive. As COVID wore on and as I watched abled, child-free people get cabin fever in isolation, I became increasingly sure that I'd made the right choice. In the last six months, our home has been mostly calm. My child has learned the wonders of possum spotting and snake proofing and what a pee tastes like fresh off the vine. 
They've seen what stars look like with no urban glow. They tell me how much calmer they feel outside of the city. They've named the majority of their ducks at a local pond, the falling in the creek, and shaken apple flowers from a tree and called it snow. By the end of summer, we'll be self-sufficient for produce. Seven months on, this rambling mountains cottage has been reclaimed from blackberry and ivy and morphed into a food forest. We walk under the shade of our pear, plum and apple trees and have crop swaps lined up already for my corn, tomatoes and potatoes. I inhale broad beans in multitudes and brine of oil and lemon twisted off their stalks less than an hour before. My friend the Prodon marvels at the ripple of muscles across my newly strong back and shoulders from building garden beds and compost bays. Our silkies, those are chickens, have arrived and are busy getting fat, fluffy buttered and scared of shadows. Everything is in bloom, including us. I have so many plump, juicy hopes now for our future that was slowly shriveling to sad little raisins in the city. Just the simplicity of feeling well in body and mind every day is something I'll forever connect with this place. I found new, healthy and functional loves that sit gently alongside that. But more importantly, I've invested more than I ever did before in the platonic bonds that never fail me. It feels like we are rarely alone, between people we love stopping by and the babe's many therapists. Home, once a train wreck, is now a calm and peaceful retreat for both myself and my small, and medication is a tool that organises our brilliance instead of muzzling it. The brilliant and funny Renee Brooks of the ADHD blog Black Girl Lost Keys talks about how to guard your yes. Finally, after decades of letting myself say yes to everything, I've learned to instead say no frequently and give my yes to those people and situations who honour it. The whimsical core remains, but I know how to protect it now. There's still problems. I have to stop the possums eating my fucking apple blossoms. And I need to remember to put my machete back in the same place every time. I'm working on that. I wonder sometimes if any of this would have happened without ADHD. It can be a very difficult way to live in the world because it just isn't set up for us. But my spiralling non-linear sense of time and great love of risk and change mean that a suddenly atypical world has demanded qualities I overflow with. I'm not totally sure I agree with Sarah Connor that there's no fate but what we make for ourselves. I didn't make this happen alone. My aunt and my friends have carried us along in their arms, but a large part of this was our magic brains. We are sleepily peeping back into the world. COVID time has made us a cast iron family, finding neurodivergent community and pride while starting recovery from two disastrous family separations in two years. We're working on learning Auslan so we can communicate more smoothly and getting kiddo back into preschool. And so far, they'll hang at the gate. We march back home after visits to the grinding shriek of cicadas, both wearing earplugs so nobody loses their shit, eating ice creams as trophies for having done the hard thing for the day. Bub has requested no more moving house for a long time. I'm with them. <laughs> I think for now, we will get our novelty fix from the scallywaggery of the possums who live in our walls and exit via the cat flap, solving the mystery of which creature has pooed in the yard overnight is enough dopamine for now. Regarding the last, I'm hiring a night vision camera to find out. I've heard of deer in the neighbourhood. I've seen a quoll creeping across my lawn. We both want to solve the mystery of the phantom shit gifter. And on Sundays, we float off decks untethered and okay, just as we were made. And I know that we've come through. In weird times, being a weirdo has been an adaptive gift. I've come to realise it probably always was. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, follow Queer Stories on Facebook and me, Maeve Marsden, on Twitter and Instagram. 
This project is supported by the City of Sydney through a creative fellowship fund. You can support Queer Stories for as little as $1 per month by signing up to my Patreon. Look up Maeve Marsden on Patreon or follow the links in the podcast description. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.